The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massa and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This is God's word. We're looking into the life of Moses in the book of Exodus, and the book of Exodus teaches us that God is our Savior, God is our Redeemer. And in this passage, you learn really that the world is essentially a wilderness. The Israelites are here, just to kind of lay out the context. Uh, They've just been set free from slavery. But now where are they? They're in the wilderness. And they're exposed, and they're wandering, and they're thirsty, and it's making them crazy, it's making them anxious, and it's making them angry. Now here, if you're anxious and angry, what do you do? You take people to trial, that's what you do. And that's what they do here. So we're going to learn four very quick points today. The background, the lawsuit, the trial, and a sentence. Uh, first, we're going to go into the background, and then verses 1 to 3 teaches us about the uh, lawsuit. Verses 4 to 5 teaches us about the trial. And verses 6 to 7 teaches us about the sentence. It's an amazing text, amazing passage. First, we're going to go into the background. Here's Moses, and he's following the Lord's commands, and he leads the people out of Egypt across the Red Sea, and now they come to a place where there's no water, and the people are upset, and they're hungry, and some of them feel like they're facing death, and so what do they do? They start to rail against Moses, and uh, they're suffering, and they're very confused about why they're suffering. They're looking for answers to their suffering. Now, if you think about it, without really getting into this, we can go into this um, uh, probably offline. There are two ways primarily in this world uh, we deal with suffering. Uh, if you look at the Eastern perspective, Eastern religions, they, their view of suffering, suffering is more of an illusion. And so the key to getting over your suffering or dealing with your suffering is um, because suffering is really a result of your desire, your selfish desires, your individualistic pursuits. And because that is at the center, the key really is to meditate and to get out of yourself, back with the one, the oneness, and really to deny suffering because suffering is an illusion. Now, counselors will tell you that's the worst way to deal with suffering in your life, to deny that it's there. If you think about any relational conflict that you have in your life, One of the worst things you can do to deal with uh, those types of conflicts is to do what? Is to refuse to talk about it, is to just absolutely deny it and say, well, we're we're actually not that bad, we're going to get there, we're going to be fine. That's one way that we can deal with it. Another way you can deal with it, Western religions, uh, a lot of churchgoers deal with it this way. If you look at the story, the narrative of Job, 
Here's Job, who was a God-loving man, who experienced a tremendous amount of suffering in a way that it was heavy, it was weighty, it was crippling in his life. And Job's friends, typical of most Westerners, Job's friends will tell you this. He tells Job, they tell Job, very Western, if you're good, then God's going to give you a good life. But if you're bad, God's going to send suffering into your life. And so if you are suffering, you must have done something wrong. You must have gone wrong. And so much of American culture is built around, as a result, this need to perform and do well and be good. We start to believe this, that if I'm successful, it must be because I've done something right. Now, uh, very interesting because how do we believe this? If you work really, really hard and center around your academics and your finances and your clubs and your extracurriculars, you're going to get into a decent college. You're going to do well. If you do really well in college, if you do all the right things, play all the, make all the right moves, negotiate properly, you're going to get a decent job. You're going to get a good job. And you can go into cycles of that, right? Job and school and then job and school, right? All that. If you work really, really hard, if you're really, really good, you're going to get a good job. You're going to get promoted. You can make director in so many years. You can make partner in so many years. You can get, become an elected official. Now, there are terrible assumptions that are being made there because the data really doesn't fit. The data doesn't fit that. For instance, one of the assumptions that we make here is that all directors, all partners, all elected officials are what? That they're good, that they've lived right. We know that's a terrible assumption. But secondly, we're also assuming that they got there because they worked hard. And if you're really assuming that, then what you're assuming is that people who didn't get promoted, people who've lost their jobs, people who didn't make partner, people who didn't win the election are not living right, that they didn't work hard enough. And so really the fact is, I mean, I know the fact is this. Most of the people I know, most of the good people I know who've lived right and worked very, very hard have been laid off in their lives. They've experienced tremendous suffering in their lives. They've lost their jobs. And, and so, how do you view this? Christianity alone, Christianity alone understands the wilderness. Christianity alone understands and acknowledges that good people suffer. Why? Because right at the center, front and center, at the heart of Christianity is what? The best man to have ever walked the earth. The only good man in history suffered injustice, suffered evil undeservedly. And yet through that suffering, God brought his kingdom, God rescued his people, God redeemed the world. Now this is par for the course for Christianity, right in the center of it. And so we believe that suffering doesn't just come into the lives of bad people, but in all people, all kinds of people. There's no real rhyme or reason except to know that when it comes, it's because God is trying to do something that's redemptive in us and use that also to redeem the world. That's how he brings his kingdom, to shape us. In other words, God, if God's going to use the perfect man and through his suffering and his humiliation and his death, redeem the entire world, then in the same way, he's going to use your humiliation, your suffering, and your death to redeem you, to shape you, to change you and redeem the world. Now, that's why, why for example, God says to all of Israel, all these Israelites here, 
he says over and over, Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8, he says, as his treasured people, the people that he loves the most, he, most, he says this, remember how the Lord God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart. And then he says this, he says, to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What does that mean? It means if suffering comes into your life, it can have a wonderful effect on you. It won't always, but it can have a wonderful effect on you. When any suffering comes into your life, what happens essentially is, whether it's a big suffering or something that's smaller, um, momentary, what it can do is it can make you a harder person and thus a nastier person in your life. It can make you bitter and sad, despondent, or it can make you godlier. It can make you greater. It can make you more loving, more compassionate, more tender-hearted. When suffering comes into your life, it can humble you, make you kill your boasting so you can depend on God, trust in God, love Jesus, serve God more, rely on God more, or it can make you complain more, grumble, become self-absorbed, full of self-pity. And that as it cascades over time, what happens is all you're left with is bitterness and pain. You become the bitterness. You become the pain. The next thing you know, instead of magnifying God and making you humbler, you start to magnify yourself. And you start to demand explanations from God. You ask God to stand in front of you before you demand explanations because you're entitled and God owes you. Now, which way do the Israelites go? Which way does the Israelites go? We see it in this text. In verse 1, they've encountered suffering. They're in the wilderness like all of us, and they come to this rough patch, this very dry patch in their life. And they didn't see a way out. And so, uh, you know, if suffering is like the heat of the sun, what does the sun do here? Does it soften them or does it harden them? It hardens them. And that's the background. That's the first point. Now, the second point is the lawsuit. So what do they do? Verse 2, they pick a fight with Moses. The text here says, so they quarreled with Moses, and they said, give us water. Now, the word quarrel here. Um, it's, it's very critical to the entire narrative. It comes up over and over. When, you hear, when we hear the word quarrel, we think, oh, they're arguing with Moses. What's wrong with that? I mean, they're, they're angry. They're thirsty. They've been suffering and lost in the wilderness for a while. You've ever been lost? I've been lost. I get lost a lot. When I get lost, it's easy to get angry. It's easy to get upset. You don't know where you're going. You don't know which direction to go. And uh, you know, like most men, we, instead of asking for help, we get angry, right? And so that's what the Israelites are doing. They're angry. They quarrel with Moses. But the word here, quarrel, is not arguing. They're not arguing with Moses here. The word actually carries very legal rhetoric. And it's as if they're lodging a formal complaint against Moses. They're bringing Moses up on charges. That's what they're doing here. And it was a serious charge because later on, verse 4, it says, they want to stone me. They want to stone me. It had to have been a serious charge. It means the complaint or the charge that these people were filing against Moses, it deemed worthy of of capital crime, a capital offense. They were essentially accusing Moses either A, of blaspheming against God, probably not, or accusing Moses of treason. They're accusing Moses of betraying the country, betraying their people. Now think about this. These people, if you just look at the last few chapters, they had just seen the 10 plagues. The 10th one just absolutely brought the most powerful country in the world to date down to its knees. 
They, had, they saw the parting of the Red Sea. They had crossed over the Red Sea, not even a single drop of wetness on them. They, they experienced the warrior fighting for them. They saw waves of divine judgment crashing over the, the military of the Pharaoh's army. But each time they come to a barrier, what happens? Instantaneously, instinctively, God is not in the equation. Never even in the equation. They just constantly, instinctively resisting God, resorting to relying on themselves, trusting in themselves. And when they do, that's when you realize how alone you are and how scary the world is. They're in the real wilderness. The real wilderness is to believe that you're all alone and you're fending for yourself, that you are responsible for your own life and that you need to get control. And that's where they are, and they're blaming Moses now. And really what they're saying here is this. They're saying, you did this to us. You brought us all the way out here just to kill us. We're all going to die here because of you. You've destroyed your nation. You've destroyed your people. You are guilty of treason. And if we're all going to die anyway, you're going to go first. You're going to die first. We're going to ruin you first. But Moses knows they're not really suing him. They're not bringing him to trial. Moses knows they're really angry at God. And that's why in verse 2 he says, why do you put the Lord to the test? Now, what that means is, when Moses is saying, why do you put the Lord, why do you quarrel, why do you put the Lord, your God, to the test? Underneath all of our complaining, underneath all the complaining about our circumstances, we're really subtly bringing God up on charges. That's what we're doing. Every time you decide to take matters in your own hands, Every time you lift up your hands, what you're really saying is, I charge you. I'm suing you. You're going to pay for this. They say that Joseph Stalin, dictator of the Soviet Union, really uh, the, the successor to the founder of the, the, com- the whole communist revolution, they say that Joseph Stalin, who's probably more guilty of, of killing his own people in numbers than the entire Holocaust during World War II, they said that at his deathbed, he rose from his bed, shook his fists at God, and then breathed his last. Because really, they, the Israelites, and we're like, they're just like us. Really what they're saying is, listen, this whole Exodus thing, it's not really going as planned. This is not the way I wanted my life to go because my life should be going like this and like this, but it's not. It's not going that way. And so uh, it's time to take matters in my own hands. You see, that's the treason to instinctively react to you not knowing or you not liking where your life is headed, to take matters into your own hands. That's the treason. That's the rebellion. And so it wasn't really Moses that was committing the treason. They were the traitors. The Israelites were the traitors. They're saying, we want control back. We want to be king. They want to control, and they never really had it in the first place. We never really have control in the first place, and we're so similar. Look at our lives. In the subtle ways, aren't we unhappy with our journey, our spiritual journey, our, our, our routine journey of life? A lot of us are very, very unhappy in our journeys. A lot of us say, you know, by now, I should be living like this. By now, I should be married. I should have kids by now. Uh, I should be making this amount of money. I should be at this level in my career. I should be at this place in life. I should be in this neighborhood and have that kind of home. Look at that guy. I mean, that that person's like a schlub. I should be ahead of this person. I should be doing better than this person. I was doing better in elementary school. I was doing better in middle school. The last I saw him, he was in high school, and he was was a a schlub. And yet here, I, I should be doing that much better, and yet 
I'm not. We're bringing God up on charges. I had a friend that I met with um, uh, a few years older than me, and uh, while I was in just my routine traveling, uh, while I was in consulting, and I met, met up with this friend, um, and uh, it was her birthday. She was near, we were right in uh, the month of her birthday, and so we were celebrating, and very close to mine in college, and, and I asked her, you know, how are you doing? How, how's it feel? You're about to turn 30. 30 is a huge milestone, right? Uh, you're about to turn 30. How, how do you feel? And she just started, I haven't seen this person in years. She started breaking down in tears. Now, this is a partner in a law firm. Partner in a law firm. Uh, She's making more money than she ever thought she'd ever make. She's doing very, very well. Attractive. You know, lots of suitors. Lots of people. I remember all through college. And yet she's she's weeping. She's crying. She's, you know, it looked like I was nervous. You know, I'm here. I am in this new city. And I felt like, you know, people are going to turn around and look at me because I'm breaking up with my girlfriend or something like that. And she turns around and she says, you know, I'm about to turn 30. I expected by the time I was 25 to be married with children. That's all I ever wanted. I didn't want to go to law school. I didn't want to become partner. I didn't want, I'll trade all of that in. All I ever wanted was to be married and have children. And I don't, I don't even have a boyfriend. And she was just weeping, just sobbing. You see? You see what we're doing? We're suing God. Now, some of us are sitting here and saying, well, I'm not really unhappy yet. But there are symptoms, and I'm going to tell you the symptoms. You have a job. You have a lot of things. You may have a girlfriend or a boyfriend, or you may be married. And so now you need to work. Now you need to labor. I'm going to put it another way. You need to slave now. Because, for example, when you have money, money tempts you in some ways to be stingy. Money has its way of doing that. And the reason why you become stingy is because why? Very practical reasons. They're not bad reasons per se. I have a home now. And I've got to attend to this home. I need to make a home. You see, I need to buy a very particular ring for my fiancé. I need, I need that promotion that I need. I need to work for that. Sometimes we're just trying to stay alive. We're just trying to survive. Just to keep our heads above water. You see, I'm responsible. God has given me, that's when God comes in the picture. God has given me these children. I'm the one that's responsible for them. I have to take care of them. I'm going to give them the best. Everything that I, I, I never was, was given myself. But you see, God was never really in the equation. Yeah, you're praying. Yeah, you're seeking. Yeah, you're, you're reading and you're studying. You're participating in the church, of course. But when something happens to your child, here are the symptoms. When something happens to your child, something happens to your job, when something happens to your security, when something happens uh, in your life, what happens is God is not in the equation. Your instincts take over. That's the treason. That's the treason. When you're praying, you're really just using God. That's how you know. God is not king in our lives. He may not have ever been king. And when things really go really bad, then you see the charge. Then you see the accusations. You subtly say, you know, all I ever really wanted to do was to honor God. What did I ever do with my life but to serve God? You ever see the movie Amadeus? Amadeus, very old movie, 1980s, one of my favorite movies. In the beginning of the movie, you see Salieri in an insane asylum. And he is a composer in the same time as Mozart, a contemporary of Mozart. And without really going into the movie, Salieri has gone insane. He's gone mad. He believes he's killed Mozart in the movie. And 
He starts to tell the story of how he used to pray earnestly, even ever since he was a child. He would pray earnestly. All he ever wanted to do was to honor God with his music. So make me a great composer. Make me this great composer, and I will serve you. I will devote my entire life to, to composing beautiful songs in your name. And then came Mozart, this infantile, perverted man, blessed with an amazing gift, to this day unequaled, unparalleled, and Salieri is insane. He's angry. What he actually says is, now I swear it, I will block you. That's what he says. We bring up charges. That's what we do. Now think about it. This is the Lord of the universe. Suing God is insanity. That's what sin is. Sin is insanity. It's insanity. You say, but I worked hard for this. I worked hard. My family, you see, my family was broken, and I had to work my way up to the top. Where was God when all that was happening, right? Who gave you your brain? Who gave you your brain? Who gave you your hands? These beautiful people, who gave you your looks? Did you earn that? Nowadays, some of us can earn that, right? But did you really earn that? Did you really earn your looks? Did you really earn your opportunities? Did you really earn your resourcefulness and your creativity? Did you earn your health? You can't earn these things. But when life doesn't go as planned, we bring up charges against God. That is the lawsuit. Now, the third point, the trial. Time magazine, now a lot of this um, I was really uh, inspired from Edmund Clowney's book, The Unfolding Mystery, tremendous book. He wrote a couple beautiful chapters about this particular text. And uh, I had to really look into this because obviously it's way before my time. Time magazine in 1957 wrote an article called Religion, The Sentencing of God. It's about this uh, East German pastor, Gunther Ruderborn, who wrote a play at the end of World War II about the Holocaust, trying to explain the Holocaust. And Gunther Rudenborn, he wrote this play called The Sign of Jonah, and uh, the real intent of the play was to figure out who's to blame. And it's a very, very interesting play. Um, it really begins, somebody, well, it's, as the play kind of unfolds, you know, somebody says, well, who's to blame? They say, well, you're to blame. He says, me? No, 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 not me. You see, the soldiers, they made me do this. So then they, go to, they put the soldiers on trial, and they say, you're the one to blame. And the soldiers say, no, me? No, 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 not me. You see, my sergeant made me do this. So then they put the sergeant on trial, and the sergeant says, no, 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 not me. I'm not to blame. You see, my superior officer, he's the one that made me do this. So then they put the superior officers on trial, and they say, you did this. And he says, no, 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 not me. You see, my uppers, my superiors made me do this. And they go all the way, and everyone's accusing each other, and they say, you did it. No, you did it. No, you did it. No. And eventually, they just keep going up and up and up, and ultimately, they say, wait a second. I know where this is going. We all know who is responsible. One by one, they go up the chain, blaming one another until they realize the one to blame for the brokenness in our lives, the one to blame for this amazing horror of the Holocaust, the one to blame, the one person to blame for all the suffering is God. Why? Because he set this up, and didn't he allow us to do this? We're just following orders, right? And that's the point. That's the point. We're blaming God for all of our problems. That's what we're doing. We're taking credit for all the success, but we're blaming God for all the problems. That started all the way back from the Garden of Eden. You don't have to look too far in the Bible to see this. In the Garden of Eden, even in paradise, Adam was dissatisfied and questioned God and violated his law. Every time you take matters into your own hands, every single time you lie on your resume, every single time you cheat, either at school or at work or in life. Every single time you escape using alcohol or drugs, 
Every single time you sleep with that one person who just makes you feel worthy, just makes you feel loved because you want the intimacy, you're craving intimacy, and that's the quick way. That's the way to do it. In the end, you are blaming God for your problems. You are bringing him up on charges. And if there's a charge, then there's a trial. And what Moses is told to do by God is this. You see this in verses 4 to 5. To take two things. The elders, he says, call the elders together and take with you your staff. Now, the staff that Moses was told to take was a a very unique symbol. On one hand, culturally, it was a symbol of authority. Uh, Edmund Clowney kind of goes into this, but you probably learned this in middle school if you even remember that far back. The Romans, they had a very specific symbol of authority. They took uh, these rods Right? And they would, uh, they would, these staffs, essentially, they would tie them together in a bundle. And if you see that bundle tied together in a stack, that bundle of rods, it was called a fasces. It's where we get the word fascist. Because the word, fa- you know, because that is a representation of the Roman representation of power and authority and discipline and control. But it's also what God told Moses to strike the Egyptians with in order to send the plagues. So on one hand, culturally, at that moment in time, at that time, in that era, it was a symbol of power and authority, but it was also a representation of judgment. The judge. God is saying, take your staff because I am the judge. I have power and authority, but I'm also the judgment. The justice is mine. I am the judge. Because when you get the rod, what are you getting? You're getting justice. Right? And if you get the ultimate version of the rod, what are you getting? You're getting executed. So the elders, God calls the elders together. Why does he call the elders together? They are the court. He's, bringing, he's coming to trial here. They're the court. And the elders only get together when a decision, a judgment has to be rendered. A decision has to be made. And so he calls the elders together. He's holding court. He's bringing them to trial. He's bring, and it's so clear that God is responding. He says, you want a trial? I'm going to give you a trial. These are serious charges, so I'm going to grant this trial. But who's the one on trial? Because it's the people of God that are really the ones that are guilty of treason. They're the ones that, that deserve to get cut off. They're the ones that are in sin. They're the ones who are insane. They're the ones who are, who are dying. But, but they're accusing Moses, and they're accusing God. Somebody deserves the trial somebody deserves a condemnation in the sentence now who is it and here's the answer it's a remarkable answer it's the turn of the text and we're at our fourth point our last point the sentence one of the most astonishing statements in the bible you don't see this anywhere else actually in the entire bible where god has ever been said to stand before anyone in the call to worship that we read this morning it's, it, the text says to come before God. Why? Because it's, whenever you come before somebody, right, the actual text here says, verse 5, take the elders and your staff and go. That's, that's the direction. Verse 6, he says, I will stand there before you by the rock and Horeb. Right? That's what he says. Really what he's saying is, because when you stand before somebody, it means that you're coming before, you're coming in front of somebody who is superior to you especially in relation or corresponding to some sort of judgment that has to be rendered. You stand before a judge, right? That's what happens. God says, I will stand before you. I am prepared to hear the judgment that will be rendered. 
I will bear the sentence. I will await the sentence and bear it. Then he says to Moses, really, he says, I want you to raise the rod, judgment. And just like he struck the Egyptians, he says, I want you to strike the rock of God, this rock that he's standing. Now, we all know whether you have grown up in the church or not, nobody can possibly physically reach the full glory of God with a stick and strike a blow, right? We could probably fashion and understand that. So imagine the amazement of Moses to hear God saying, I will stand before you on this rock and I want you to strike the rock. I mean, you're not even supposed to touch something that God is on. Later on, just a few chapters later, which we will see, on Mount Sinai, God says, I don't even want an animal to touch this mountain because I'm going to descend on this mountain. I don't even want an animal to touch it. And if an animal, if even an animal touches this mountain, you have to stone it today. I want you to put it to death. Here God says, I'm going to stand on this rock before you and I want you to bring down the rod. And Moses does. Moses brings down the rod. What does that mean? Centuries later, the Apostle Paul explains that the rock was Christ. In other words, we should be the ones on trial. But God put himself on the trial. We should be the ones who are guilty of cosmic treason. But God's the one that stands and took the punishment, the punishment that's supposed to smite us, the punishment that should have ended us. It could have ended us. It should have wiped us out. But instead, he took the blow. The full force of the blow of every, the collective sum of all of his people throughout all of history, which would have wiped out his people, ended us, and he took it. Now, friends, we suffer. Yes, we suffer. Many times when we're suffering, we're tempted to say, I don't really agree with what's going on. I don't really like what's happening. And we don't do it out loud. We do it very subtle ways. We do it in our hearts, and we think of awful things, awful complaints. We are putting God on trial all the time. Every single time something doesn't go well, even if you're right, it's not so much the content, right, that you're right. It's what you're actually doing with that content. You are putting God on trial. We are rejecting God all the time, and yet he takes the blow. Will you plunge your complaining and your fear and the dryness of our souls into the grace of God and take in the water. You know what happens here? The water comes out. Edmund Clowney in his book, actually just about every commentator that I read as as I was preparing this text notes that at the end of this, they all cite Gunter Rutenborn. And uh, at the end of this play, they sentence God. And here's the sentence. They, they sentenced him to become a human being, a wanderer on earth, deprived of all of his rights, homeless and hungry and thirsty. And they, they, they sentenced him. They said, you're going to lose your son and you're going to suffer the agony of fatherhood so that you understand and you know how we all felt and, and you're going to be disgraced and you're going to be ridiculed and then after all that suffering, we're going to put you to death. You will die. You are sentenced to die. Guess what? It's not just a play. That's not just fiction. It's true. God did serve that sentence. It's an amazing thing, you know, that God, on one hand, doesn't 
he not only doesn't punish us for the things that we've said and done, for the things that we've thought, all the ways that we've brought him up on charges and our complaining and our grumbling, the way we react to our fears, we just go insane. I mean, you know, we just heard a couple sermons ago how the Israelites, they come to the Red Sea and they, their instant reaction after seeing all that God has done, they come to fear. And they go to complaining and grumbling. They say, it would have been better for us to just serve the Egyptians. That's what they say. We're so easily, we're so given to that. We shake our fists at God. We punish God in a sense with all of our actions. We take matters into our own hands. So we deny God. We reject God. We say, you are not worthy. You, you clearly don't know what you're doing here. We resist God. We rebel against God. And yet God doesn't punish us. God doesn't punish but instead, what, he, what he's done is he actually commits himself to the sentence that we deserve. Now, on one hand, he has to sentence. There has to be a sentence. If there's no sentence, evil wins. If there's no sentence, the most horrible things that you will ever endure in life, it wins. There's no justice. God is just. There has to be a sentence. But God is loving and God is gracious because he takes on the sentence. He takes the blow. You see, all of this was really just... Um, as true as it was, as true as this narrative has been, it was really symbolic. And yet, water comes out of the rock and the people get to drink. How do we drink from this rock? The author of Hebrews in the New Testament says, the Son, Jesus Christ, the Son is the exact radiance of the glory of God. The Son is the exact radiance. That's the Son, the Son of God, Jesus that thing, that, that glory cloud and pillar that guided the Israelites as they were wandering around the desert, that brilliance, that glory is the sun. That's what the author of Hebrews says. He is the exact representation of the glory of God, and yet he comes to earth and he does become homeless. Jesus says the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. He did go hungry. In fact, in Mark chapter 1, where is Jesus? He's in the wilderness, and he's wandering, and he's got no home, and he's got no food, but he doesn't complain, and Satan wants him to complain. The enemy is tempting him and says, you can turn these stones to bread, and what does Jesus say? Man does not live. It is written. He quotes scripture. Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's what he says. Jesus is hungry and he's weak and he's suffering and yet he's fully reliant on the Lord. He's fully reliant on God, fully trusting God. All the way to the cross. Where did that lead him? It led him to the cross. And yet, even while he's on the cross, there he says, I am thirsty. He says, I'm thirsty. And you know what? He gives us living water. You know, John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, she's thirsty. She comes to a well. Jesus, and in their conversation, she's fully transformed. She gets living water. He gives her living water. He gives us living water. We can drink from the rock because he was thirsty. When Jesus thirsted, he wasn't just, you know, referring to physical thirst. You think I'm stretching? Listen, there's not a single place in the text. You see the authors writing throughout every one of the Gospels that Jesus suffered the nails and the crown of thorns. He was beaten. He was flogged. And you never hear him say, not once does he say, the nails are killing me. I'm going to get tetanus. He doesn't say that. You don't see him saying that. I don't want to make light of this. Not once does he complain. In fact, from the prophecy all the way to the reality, it says that Jesus remains silent. 
But then on the cross, he says, I thirst. Do you think it was because he just wanted water after all that he had endured? Jesus Christ says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's really saying is, now I'm suffering the true lostness because the center of my worship, the center of my life has abandoned me, has left me for dead, and I'm lost, and I'm wandering, and I'm thirsty. I am thir- this is the ultimate thirst. I'm suffering. I'm really, this is the cosmic thirst. They say hell is like a fire. It's thirsty, it's thirsty. I'm suffering hell on the cross. That's what he's saying. I've been condemned. I'm living out the sentence. I've lost the one thing that is my rescue. There is no rescue for me. I've trusted on the word of God and it's led me to the cross. And still, do you know, he was still quoting from the word of God. He was still quoting from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was still trusting in the word of God. He was still trusting. In fact, Isaiah 53 says he was, he was recounting this, reflecting on this, and he was glad. He was glad. Because of that, in John chapter 7, Jesus cries out, anyone who comes to me will never thirst again. In fact, in him will become streams of water, streams of living water. In other words, the only drink that can completely satisfy you and cleanse you and refresh you and bring you life. That's what water does. When you drink water on a hot day after you've played tennis or golf or anything, what do you need? You drink water. Nothing, nothing like water. When you drink water, good water, fresh, clean water, cold water, what happens? Oh, it's refreshing. It gives you new life. You're like a new man. What does that mean to drink from this rock that is Christ? If you today are willing to trust, Lord, I deserve everything that Jesus received on the cross. And yet, because he lived the life that I should live, and because he died the death that I should die, now I receive everything that Jesus deserved. He was the son, now I get to be a child. I want to trust that. If you do that, that's the end of your complaining. That's the end of your fear. That's the beginning of courage. That's the beginning of renewal. That's satisfaction. You can say, Lord, I'm committed to stop demanding an explanation. That's where it starts. I'm just committed now. I realize I don't need an explanation. I want an explanation, but who am I? to demand that of you. I'm committed to stop demanding an explanation for why things go, you know, haywire in my life. I want to stop, I'm committed to stop insisting that things have to be my way. I'm committed to stop bringing charges up against you. Whatever you desire, whatever you bring in my life, that's where I need to be because that's where you are. I want to be with you. Now, if you resist the truth that Jesus took the blow that you deserved, that, that Jesus, the gospel is good news because Jesus took the, took the he, took, he got struck. And it's only by God's grace, only by his sheer love, sheer grace that he took the blow. That's the end of your entitlement. That humbles you. You realize, I deserve this. That's gonna humble you. That truth is gonna humble you. That's the end of your entitlement. That's the end of your, of your um, boasting. That's the end of you demanding things. 
I see a lot of that in the church. Just in our two years of, of life as a church, so many people, how many people here have said at some point in their lives, believed at some point in their lives, I have rights here. I get to demand, you have to answer to me. How many times have you seen that? Here's God. He is charged. And uh, when, you, when, you, when we come to God with these demands, it doesn't outrightly go to God. Just like the play, it starts, we start to uh, strike other people first. That's how it starts. That's what gossip is. You start to blow and strike other people down. And they're going to pay the price because you're thirsty and you're empty and you want them to pay. Over time, the community falls apart. That's how churches die. As you do that, then it's going to hurt your family. Your family is inevitably going to take that pain. You're going to strike your family because they're not living according to the way they should be living. Right? You have certain demands and standards and explanation, ex- expectations, and it's subtle, but it's real. They're going to take the blow. They're going to take the punishment. And ultimately, you're going to start to punish yourself because you failed. You look around, there's brokenness everywhere. You're going to take the punishment. You're going to take the blow. You're going to pity yourself, and you're going, to, you're going to just hurt yourself. And you know, another way we do that is we just work. You're going to punish yourself just by working because you've got to get there because you are failing to live up to your own standards. And so it starts inwardly, and that it becomes very, very corrosive, the insecurity, the inadequacy, the insufficiency, the lack of satisfaction, and then it starts to break out outwardly until not just your soul, but outside, you start to corrode. You're going to get older, your health is going to deteriorate because you're overworking. And, you're, and you can't stay, I mean, if you stay angry for a lifetime, if you stay guilty for a lifetime, do you know what that does in 30 years? It's going to do something to you. you to come to the gospel, to come to the rock and to drink is to say, Lord, I see it. Christ is the water that I've been looking for all my life. And as I drink of this, I realize I don't need to ask you for explanations anymore. I don't need to grumble or be so dissatisfied with where I am because that's where you are. That's where you've led me. I don't have any rights here. I don't, I, don't have any, I don't have any rights to make demands here. You don't answer to me. If anything, you own me. You are the king. And if you turn to Christ, the charges get lifted. In fact, the charge is on you. And they're lifted. You know why? Because Jesus paid the price. Jesus was struck. God took the hit. That's the beginning of gratitude. That's the beginning of thankfulness. That's that's the beginning. Why would anybody in their right mind want to even give a penny to somebody that they don't know that does not deserve what they've worked so hard for? Think about it. Ever think about the tithe and why we do that? Why do we do that? We do that because it begins with thankfulness. That's the only reason why you should do it, because you're thankful. The church becomes this living example of people who've drunk from the rock. They stop making excuses. Even if they're falsely accused, they can take it. They stop making demands. They stop complaining about their discomforts. Verse 7 concludes with Masa and Meribah. Masa means test. Meribah means quarrel. Because these people have been arguing and quarreling with God, bringing him up on charges, They bring him to trial, and yet Jesus Christ finished. He said, it is finished. The debt is paid. I've paid the price. The sentencing, the execution is complete. Now, to come to Christ, as I just said, means we stop 
bringing God up on trial, and we stop, as a result, putting ourselves on trial. Every single time someone slights you, what are you doing? You feel like you're on trial. Every every time someone makes an accusation, whether you believe it or not, whether you know it's true in your heart or not, you're on trial. Friends, Jesus Christ was on trial. And he was silent for you because you couldn't be. We're always trying to fight for our rights and fight for what's right, right? That's what we do. Jesus Christ remained silent for you. Jesus Christ took the sentencing for you. Jesus Christ took every punishment for you. Jesus Christ was cast outside of, he was crucified outside of the city. What that means is you are an outcast for you. So you could be brought in, so you could be accepted, so you could be embraced, so you could be loved. And if that is your confidence, you will respond with thankfulness, it will humble you, and yet give you tremendous courage, a courage that will last. Because the God of the universe loved you to the degree that he would go on the cross in his love to die for you, will that melt your heart? Not just today, but for all time. Can that melt your heart when you're suffering? Will you remember Christ who was struck, the ultimate strickenness for us? So these sufferings, whether they point to a thirsting or an emptiness or whether you're just wanting an explanation for it because it's something that just happened and you don't know where you are, Will you be able to connect with the ultimate God of the universe who was also struck? Will you be able to connect with his suffering? Because he understands and he loves. He cared. Truly he cares. It wasn't just Jesus who suffered on the cross. God suffered to lose your son. Can you imagine that? To lose your only son. And yet he willingly and gladly for you. Will that melt your heart today, this week? Let's pray together, shall we?